Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. How are you, beautiful people? Can you just start giving someone a high five? Just tell them you are amazing. Just call their names and say you're amazing. Welcome to your year of fruitfulness. Just tell them that. Welcome to your year of fruitfulness. Call them by their name. All right. It's an amazing time that we're in this time. This time. This month is a brilliant month. It's a month to to really take us back to what matters, to go to the foundation, to fortify that foundation and then build up from there uh, the rest of the year. Look, I, I want you to be very interested. I want you to be wrapped attention. Many of you made your goals, your new year resolution. Some of you even sent me DMs and said, look, this year I want to be more consistent, more effective, more active and proactive in the ministry. And this is your chance to do that. This is your chance to set the course of the year on a very good note. And look, I'm telling you, if you stick, like really stick to all that will be taught here, you'll be better for it. No one needs to ask you questions. You will see it in your life. You will see this is where you were point A, this is where you are point B, and this is where you're going point C. It will be clear for everyone. To the blind eyes, it will be very visible. So I want you to pay attention. I want you to listen to everything. Bring out your Bibles, bring out your writing notes, and we're going to get started. Praise the name of Jesus. There's so much to unpack from just, just one teaching and this, this topic. Uh, and I'll try my best to, to cover as much as I can. And we'll just continue in the course uh, of the month. I want to remind you that tomorrow we're prasting. And like Pastor Chisholm said, we are praying. We are fasting. That's what prasting is. It's a cool name. Yes, we're cool like that. We want you to, to express your consecration for God in this way. To say, look, there are things that your body desires and normally is accustomed to. But you're saying, look, I want to feed my spirit over my flesh. I want to give the attention to my spiritual growth. And I'm going to set some things aside. And of course, we're going beyond food, water, and all of that to show you that fasting is way more than just these things. It's not just you saying, I'm, not, I'm going on a hunger strike. It's you, know, it's you saying, look, these are the things that I'm used to. I'm used to doing this. It's not bad in itself. But I'm just used to it and I want to put it aside. And that's why during the course of, of the prasting, we're going to have specific days where we, you know, it's, we call it hashtag not today, hashtag exposing idols, where we literally say for the whole day, you're not going to do a certain thing, uh, maybe no, no TV at all, whether you've broken your fast that day or not, or no talking to that particular friend all day. I'm just giving you examples to so prepare yourself for it. But Anytime you make a decision to consecrate yourself to the Lord, it's always worth it. I promise you. All right, so stick around for that. More announcements will come uh, regarding that. Praise the name of Jesus. Today's teaching is called Anchored by, by Abundant Grace. Anchored by Abundant Grace. It's a mouthful. Uh, I call it Abag for short. Anchored by Abundant Grace. It's the For many of you who have followed the ministry for a long time, this was the very first title of the devotional that we put out there to, to set the right foundation. And, and it only made so much sense to, to name this teaching just that, Anchored by Abundant Grace. And as I'm, I'm about to start this teaching on grace, I want to just help you put this in mind. We'll revisit this towards the end. But why do believers need this, right? Um, 
if we are having a group of people who we say are unbelievers, don't believe this thing, it makes sense to preach the gospel to them. It makes sense to emphasize the grace of God, to show the love of God, to show his sacrifice in Christ Jesus. It makes all the sense. But PK, we are saved already. Why are you telling us all of this? Because at the end of the day, whether you have someone who is hungry and you feed them, they are well. But even if you have someone who is not too hungry and you still give them the things that their body needs for growth, it's all good. It still helps them. At the end of the day, this is your food as a believer. While the grace of God you know, that was preached to you saved you, it's also the same grace that saves you. So I said it saved you when you believed in the gospel, but this same gospel saves you. It transforms you. It's the food you need. It's the food you need. You need it. And, and I think in our culture, we need to get to a place where repeating the same things again and again makes you excited. I know we're in a generation where our attention span is so short, we always want the next best new thing. We want the most explosive, dramatic, you know, spectacular thing coming up. But the truth of the matter is if you really want to grow, there are some teachings you will sit under, which are like, I think I know all of these things that are being said, but it's good for you. Sometimes you'll be like, ah, this teaching doesn't sound like the most exciting thing, but it's good for you. I'm going to read a scripture to you very quickly before I show you some things to watch out for in this teaching. I'm going to open my Bible to Philippians chapter 3. I want you to go there as well. Philippians chapter 3 from verse 1. Glory to Jesus. I'll give you some time. I want you to see this for yourself. Philippians chapter 3 from verse 1. Glory to Jesus. <laughs> I love this. It says, finally, my brothers, and this is Paul speaking to the Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I love that he starts this verse with it. Be excited. Be be happy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Hey, look, if I have to write the same thing again and again in, in different letters, again and again, the exact same things just for you to to understand the importance of these things. Hey, it's no trouble for me. I will gladly do it. But for you, it is what? It is safe. It is safe. And that's what Paul is saying, that when the the true sound doctrine of, of, of the gospel of Christ is being preached again and again, first of all, it needs to be preached again and again for the for the sake of emphasis, because it's important. All right? It's important. But he's saying, look, for your sake, it is safe. So that you don't think that somehow the gospel has been updated. And somehow we have a gospel 2.0 that appeals to our generation. It's the same old gospel. And so we will preach it again. And next year, 2024, we will preach the same thing again. To remind you that this thing has not changed because it is safe for you. Glory to God. You know, I saw someone's tweet very important. Someone just came on Twitter and said, um, premarital sex is still a sin. Just came to say it's no, no updates to the Bible. And that was very bold because we live in a generation that does not believe that. We live in a generation that believes you can do whatever you want as long as you hurt nobody and you love people. That's not true. There is more to this faith than just being a goody two-shoes. Praise the name of Jesus. So this is what um, why believers need this teaching of grace. And that's you if you're a believer. Um, The first one is it renews the joy of salvation. That's number one. It renews the joy of salvation. 
Look, I, 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 anytime I hear a preaching of the gospel, well taught, the good news of Jesus Christ, it, it, it is good news to me. It helps you remember that, look, at the end of the day, I couldn't save myself. I'm a beneficiary of God's grace. I, I was not worthy of him. He found me worthy, however, and even took me in. He didn't just see me on the roadside and say, oh, yeah, take some money. He took those raggedy clothes. He dressed me, brought me into his house, gave me all the gifts and inheritance that I could ever think of. Imagine someone does that. Imagine you're walking on the streets and you just saw a rich man come down from his car, see a beggar, give him some money to take care of himself, but says, you know, uh, boys, you know, his bodyguard says, carry him, bring him to the house. And they take off his clothes, give him a good, give him a good bath, throw a party for him, celebrate this guy. And then in his will, this rich man says, you know what, I want to give this, 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 this inheritance to this guy. He was a stranger before. I had no idea who he was, but now he's family. That is exactly the picture of salvation. And that's the story of the prodigal son that you see. It's that picture of you didn't deserve it. And in fact, what you got that you didn't deserve was extravagant. So it's an extravagant uh, expression of God's love. And, and that's why it's important. So whenever you hear the gospel being taught, remember that there is joy in salvation. Nothing might be working well in your life at that time. Things might be difficult. You might even be very sorrowful about something that's happened. Current circumstances are just weighing down on you. But there is joy in salvation. That if everything else fails, there is a joy. And so it should show. Like Paul said, he said, when he wrote that scripture, he said, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things is not trouble to me, but it's safe for you. There's, there's a reason to rejoice when you hear these things being taught. It's a joy of salvation, joy of salvation. The thing that David prayed for, where he said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, is not a prayer point for you as a believer. You have the joy of salvation. You have it already. And this was a man who thought he was destitute, separated from God, condemned forever, seeking forgiveness. But that forgiveness you have. And so you're not asking God to restore it. You're asking God, Lord, you're remembering what God has done in thanksgiving. God, I remember what you did on the cross and I'm grateful. Hallelujah. Come on, someone who is rejoicing and excited about all that God has done. Can you rejoice right now? Glory to God. Hallelujah. Joy of salvation. Number two, it inspires boldness and confidence before God. Look, as a believer, as much as sin is no longer your birthright, sometimes it will start to bear its ugly marks and spots on your body once in a while. It will want to come out. It will want to make you make those mistakes you shouldn't make. And sometimes it, it affects, and I, I, I want us to not pretend if you've ever been in the, in the shoe where you, you know God loves you, but you did something or you behaved a certain way or you did not do something you were supposed to. And that brought a sense of guilt, a sense of condemnation. Like, I can't approach God anymore. I, I don't think I can pray. You, you notice when you stop going to church, when you stop having the, the desire to pray, you, you feel like God is obsessed with you or study your Bible or anything spiritual. And that leads you even further to doing the things you ought not to be doing. When you start to stay in isolation, that's a consequence of not truly understanding the gospel of grace. The gospel is supposed to give you a boldness. It says, having therefore boldness to enter into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a confidence that comes with the blood of Jesus. 
It says that we may come boldly to his throne of grace. The, the words used are boldly. There is confidence. Having this confidence that whatever we ask of him, 1 John 5, there is a confidence, there is a boldness that the blood of Jesus affords us. And by understanding the gospel of grace, you have that boldness. It reminds you that you are still one with the Father. That the Father has not called you an outcast because of that one mistake. He has not disowned you because you fell down and you fell short. He's there. He's, he never leaves nor forsakes. Number three, it instills humility before God. It instills humility before God. Because at the end of the day, when you start to think about how you got here into the family of God, you realize it was not of yourself. It was God. It was God. It was God that saved. It was God that saved. No one else. It brings a sense of humility that God, look, at the end of the day, I didn't bring myself here. I didn't. I believed, yes, quite all right, but you did all the work, and I'm humbled by it. I'm humbled by it. It instills humility before God. Number four, it provides victory over sin. A true understanding of the gospel of grace affords you the victory to live above sin. And number five, it sustains our hope beyond this world. It sustains our hope before this, you know, beyond this world because we live in a world that is short-sighted. People are looking for the next best thing, the, the thing that can sustain them to the next. And some people can't even see afar off. People are at, at, at the brink of giving up. And, and the hope that we have, the anchor for our souls, is what keeps us looking ahead like Jesus did, you know, you know looking forward to the joy that was set before him, you know, despising the cross. Praise the name of Jesus. So this is why, if you are a believer listening to this, you need this teaching. All right, pay attention. If you've heard things you've heard before, great. Receive them again. Rejoice with the word you receive because it's powerful and it's safe for you. And if you're hearing new things, glory to God, more grace to you, more knowledge to your bank. And at the end of the day, it, it, should, inspire, um, it should inspire wisdom. You should take steps. You should take action from what you hear. Praise the name of Jesus. I want to start with a, with a teaching. A uh, very interesting story. It's a narrative in the book of Acts, chapter 16. And so this is the case where Paul uh, was traveling with Barnabas, but Barnabas had to do some other work. And so Paul decided to go with Silas to this place. All right, so he goes to Silas, um, and they, they get to this place um, where there are a lot of people in the, in the marketplace, and they stumble upon this woman, this young girl, actually. With a, it's a spirit of divination is what the Bible says. So she's all those, you know, when you watch those movies and you see that boy, ah, I see into your future, you have five twins, five sets of twins or something like that. Amen. Is that for someone there? Five sets of twins? No? Okay. Just check it. And they see into your future and they tell you things or they read your palms. She was that kind of person. But the Bible says she had a spirit of divination. And, and that just shows that a lot of these people have a spirit behind the things they do. And so she was saying, these are men of God who have come to preach the gospel. She was causing an uproar, you know, and for days she kept doing this. And Paul was like, yeah, she sound, at first she sounded like she was saying, you know, she saw us, she knew we were ministers of the gospel quite all right. But he got fed up. He knew that there was something, the Bible says he perceived in his spirit that this is someone that was troubled. And he, he looked vexed in his spirit and cast that devil out. Out in the name of Jesus. And she was free. And because of that, she could not do her fortune telling again. And so she had people who 
um, you know, got gains and profit from her job, from, from that fortune telling, and they got upset. They needed to get these guys in trouble. How can you come and spoil our multi-million dollar business? How dare you? And so they came, they got the crowd to be against Paul and Silas, and that's where we get, you know, we get the famous song, Paul and Silas. This is what happened. They were locked up in prison for just doing the, God, you know, the work of God, preaching the gospel. And so while they were there, I'm going to read from verse 22. Okay, I think, yeah, I've already talked about this. They were beaten, they were, they were, they were mocked, and then they were laid in prison. Uh, they were thrown into prison. And there was a jailer that was commanded to keep them securely. All right. And verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the Spirit were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. I love this. If you are going to remix that song to make it accurate, it's Paul and Silas. They prayed, they sang, and the earthquake ensued, or the prison doors opened. To say the Holy Ghost came down was not the case. The Holy Ghost was already there with them. Amen. Do you understand what I mean? So they prayed, they sang, the whole prison doors opened, and the prisoner, uh, the, the jailer, I beg your pardon, the keeper of the prison, woke up. And this is what the Bible says in verse 27. Awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. So he didn't even go to check. I mean, normal, a reasonable prisoner, if the door is open, what happened? It's automatic. The prisoner is gone. But they were still in the prison. Paul and Silas were still there, you know. And he saw this happen. He was like, no, this is it. Why did he want to commit suicide? Because when there's Roman punishment and Roman discipline for losing a prisoner, it is more embarrassing and humiliating than suicide itself. Because they will shame you in front of your family, your friends. If you had any sort of respect, it was stripped of you. You'd be the most humiliated person in all of, of town. And then you'd be put to death on top of that. So... The best thing is, he said, look, my only option right now, I don't see any hope beyond this. I have lost my prisoners. I'm not even going to bother to check in the prison. They, they have to have been long gone already. I'm going to just end it right now. There's no hope for me. It's over. This is my life. I don't know why I got this job in the first place. I wanted to be a doctor. See where I found myself. He's just, you know, thinking about all these things and wants to take his life. And look at what happens. This is powerful. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. We are all here. We're still here. And then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? This man had seen the dramatic hand of God to rescue these people. And not only just the dramatic hand of God, he sees the love of God in the person of Paul. How? This literally was a man in direct resistance to the spread of the gospel. Locked up the most uh, prominent advocate of the faith, Paul, and his, accompany, his partner, Silas, locked them up in prison. And he was about to take his life. He was literally going to remove himself from the equation and cause, you know, cause the gospel to probably spread more. 
But in that moment, Paul saw an opportunity to show love and says, no, don't do what you're about to do because we're still here. And this guy, mesmerized by the power and the love of God, bows trembling and says, Sirs, please, this, is, this, this cannot be ordinary. This is the hand of God. What must I do to be saved? And I think that many people have this question burning in their hearts. What must I do to be saved? Because we all have a similar problem like this man. Everyone around the world, there's a universal problem. Whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are tall or you are down to earth, whether you are of, you're black or you're white, you're male or you're female, you are a master or you are a slave, everyone has this problem. Everyone. And that's why the prosperity gospel is dangerous. And when I talk about prosperity gospel, I'm talking about the gospel that says, come to Christ because he can give you stuff. Come to Christ because he can do this and do that and do this and do that. Yes, God blesses his children. But the gospel was not that Christ died to give you bread. That was not what. He didn't die to give you silver and gold. All right, and I've explained this. If that was the reason why he died, then, then Peter and John had missed their route. <laughs> Maybe they didn't have faith or something. Because literally, we see post the resurrection of Jesus, they are talking to a man saying, silver or gold, we have none. And that's not what Jesus came. But we have something, we have power, we have authority, and we give that to you as well. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. So the prosperity gospel is dicey and dangerous because when you go to someone who is wealthy, what would you tell them is the reason they should come to Jesus? Come to Jesus because he will give you what? Give you money? They will look at you. What are you talking about? Do you know what I have? In, do you know my net worth? I have billions of dollars stacked up. You are telling me God will give me. What more money do I need? I have money that can cover for, for, for 5 million people. And I'll still be fine. What are you talking about? Would you talk to someone you know, who, is, who is maybe short and you say, Look, God, God can do so much. Believe in Jesus and he will make you talk. What are you saying? You know, you, you can't come to people to bait them with the wrong bait. You can't fish with the wrong bait is what I'm trying to say. The gospel of Christ solves one problem, a universal problem that no matter whoever you, whoever you are, whether you're Roman or you're Jew, everyone, every single person can benefit of the gospel of grace. Praise the name of Jesus. And what is that need? It's a need for salvation. It's a, it's a place where you realize that, look, you are a sinful person. You are a sinful person. That's the bad news. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible even says this. Let me read this to you. Romans chapter 3 from verse 10 to 12. I want you to open your Bibles. I want you to see the description of our state, the, 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 the actual description of what, what we were before Christ. I want to show you the description. Praise the name of Jesus. Oh, glory, 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 glory. Romans chapter 3 from verse 10 to 12. I'll read that and I'll read verse 23 as well. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none what righteous. No, not one. Verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Not truly anyways. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. 
and they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. This is, this is a text that is telling you, look, no one is good. Not a single person. Yes, you've done good things. You might have done things to impress people. You've done charitable works. But this scripture still stands and says, see, no one is good. No one is good. And Jesus references this when he talks to this man who says, oh, good teacher. And he says, there's no one who is good except God. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the idea is that if you're not God or an offspring of God or made, in the, or, or, or made according to the nature of God, you're not good. This is a text that says that verse 23 emphasizes and says, for all have sinned. This is the reason why no one is good. For all have sinned and have what? Fall short of the glory of God. Everyone fallen short of the mark. We've missed the mark. That's what it means to sin. It means to lago, you know, to Yakubu. For those of you who remember that reference. When you, you are literally in front of the goalpost and you miss. You miss the mark. That's sin. The expectation. And, and more than just being people of bad character. Ephesians 2.1 tells us what the real problem is. Let's open our Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 1 to 2. Praise the name of Jesus. Are you following me so far? Praise the name of Jesus. Ephesians 2 from verse 1 to 2. It says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses. The state of your life back then was you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spiritual now works in the sons of disobedience. The description of you was not just that you were a bad person. It says you were dead. And because you were dead, you were a bad person. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not that you're a bad person in need of some behavioral modification or character adjustment. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is bringing dead people to life and not turning bad people to good people. That's not the idea. It's bringing the dead back to life. It says, he, you know, you, has he quickened? The word quickened means to make something alive. You, he made you alive who were once, what, dead in sins and trespasses. That was the state of this man's heart. The jailer knew it. He knew there was something fundamentally wrong with him. He needed help. He needed a savior. And thank God for the, the heart of Paul. And look at how it ends. We're going to go back in Acts, Acts chapter 16. Paul replied to him and said, Look, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and not just you, your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He didn't just say, Believe Jesus, Jesus loves you. He went, they went further to explain this word of the Lord. This gospel of salvation, what Jesus came to accomplish on that cross and up from the grave. They explained it to him, told him, look, let's have your household come together. So the, the picture you're seeing is that they went to him, went to his house, brought his family, preached the gospel to them. And they, if you know how it works in their household, it's not just his wife and children. You're talking his siblings, you're talking his uncles, his aunties, everyone extended in one place. And look at what happens. And they took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. So they took care of them uh, and all of that. See, look at the, the scripture even said, verse 32, that the word of the Lord to him and all who are in his house. So they, they washed them up, you know, and, and cleaned them, you know, for all the beatings that they've gone through, Paul and, and Silas. 
And immediately he and all his family were what? Baptized. No wasting of time. <laughs> now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. Look at that. This is beautiful. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his house. So this is the joy of salvation. This is a man who was at his lowest point. This was a man at the very end of his life. And by one man's act of kindness and love, an entire household was saved. And this is to you who are praying warfare prayers. The prayers are, oh, all my enemies die by fire. That woman died by fire. Every... <clears throat> Remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's the principalities that are moving and operating behind these people. The, the scripture in Ephesians said the spirit of disobedience that worked in them. So it's not just the people. They are, the people are not the problem. They are people just like you who are equally worthy of being saved. They are the whosoevers. This was a whosoever. This jailer. In fact, a direct enemy of God. But by one man's act of love, which is, the, which is an extension of the love that God had for this world, that he gave himself. This was a man that, that needed to survive. Him and his partner, they needed to escape. But they saw an opportunity to help someone else escape. Escape the condemnation of God. Powerful stuff. So when we talk about the, God, the, the, the good news, the gospel, we talk about the bad news first. The gospel means too good. The Greek word for it means too good to be true news. It's called evangelion in the Greek. It's too good. It's almost unbelievable. How can you tell me the wealthiest man in all of Nigeria went down to his street, picked someone, adopted them, cleaned them, threw a party for them, and then wrote a will signing their name on that will? That's it, no, it doesn't make sense. What did that man do? He, is, is he contributing to the man's company? No. Did he do some nice philanthropic work before he got that? No. Did he write some exam? No. So what? It doesn't make sense. What happened? This man just saw him as worthy and somehow fell in love with him and just brought him into his family. It makes no sense and that's what the gospel means in many ways. It's great news, but for it to be great news, you have to know the bad news. The bad news is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We've all fallen short. We were, the Bible says no one was good. No one was righteous. No one. The bad news is Romans 6, 23 that says the wages of sin is what? Is death. The penalty for sin is that you've sinned. You've fallen short, but there's a penalty for it. And that's how the, the, the justice system works. And I'm going to talk about that now. The justice of, of, of God. The justice and the mercy of God. Because whenever you talk about the gospel, fundamentally, if you want to answer the question, why, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to come on a cross and, and give his life for everyone? Why? Why was it important? If God truly is omnipotent and he's able to do all things, what God cannot do does not exist. If he's... he's able to do all things. Why couldn't he just stand with a divine megaphone to all the world and say, all of you, 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 I, the Lord, 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 Yahweh, 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 Adonai, 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 I'll be merciful to you, 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 be forgiven, forgiven, given, 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 all of you, oh, 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 I'm just, probably that's how it sounds. And then everybody, as he says, forgiven, there'll just be one wind, purging you, if you had not bathed that day, you'd be covered too. It's fine. Just purge you. Everybody white as snow, glowing. Like, 
If God is that powerful, why couldn't he have done that? It's because God has attributes that define him. The, the attributes that get this world running, that give us those sense, that conscience and that sense of, of right and wrong, that moral compass. It's because we get that from him. And so anything God does is always going to be in line with the attributes. All right? And I'm not saying God is, 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 is controlled by his attributes, but he chose to be limited with the attributes that he, he has. Do you understand what I mean? He, he chose to operate in those attributes. And one of those attributes is that he's just. He's a righteous God. And I'm going to show you a scripture that, that talks about that. You see, Psalm 80, 89 verse 14 says this. Psalm, 18, Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Talking to God. Right? Righteousness and what? Justice. At the foundation of your throne. And I love the next part. We're going to talk about this. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. All right. There is there's justice. So justice simply means giving people what they deserve. That's what justice is. If you do good, you should be rewarded. And rightly so. If you're not rewarded, imagine you go for an international competition. You've studied hard and you do this. You do, you've done all the work. And they said, you know, if you win the first place, you get an all-expense-paid trip. You get one million naira, And then you get, um, what else do they give people? Maybe you get a nice laptop or something like that or an iPhone. And all these gifts. You're excited and you prepare hard. You labor day and night, burn the midnight oil. And then guess what? You win. You actually win first place. And they say, ah, oh, well done. You inspired us. You know, we, we, we really don't have this gift for you right now. We just wanted to do a test run, you know, just to see how, you know, competitive everybody will be. You just wanted to just see something. Um, but well done. You did well. Handshake. Just take a handshake. You have done well. And they don't give you those things. You, you would riot. You would drag them on Twitter. You will sign a, what do they call those things? Uh, coalition be You get gather people to sign a petition. You know, because you are not treated fairly. You worked for something and you were not given. So there's a reward system. You do good, you should be rewarded. But if you do bad, if there is a criminal that has committed a crime, that criminal should do time, should pay for their crimes. And that's the world of justice that every one of us, somehow within us, you know, we have that longing. And maybe some people will say, I, I couldn't care less about what anybody does. We only sound that way until it happens to someone we care about. Have you noticed? And so maybe you saw a court case, it meant nothing to you, but now the court case affects you and your family, and your mother is on, on trial, and she needs to get you know, you know, justice for her, 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 the person who offended her, whatever. Then it matters to you, because we all have a sense of justice, and it's good that God is just. You cannot say God is wicked. Many times we, when we read the narrative of the Old Testament, we say God is a wicked God. The Old Testament God is a bad God. And when we see, many times we see and call evil, it's actually justice. It's judgment. They did wrong. There's nobody that does right and God punishes. It, it, it just doesn't happen. It's God's system, justice. And that's why Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If blood is not shed, if a life is not given for the life of another, sins cannot be forgiven. 
That's the principle. It's, it's a system of justice. Someone has to die. Someone has to pay the price. But how is it possible that God, who is just, the Bible tells us he's also merciful. So Psalm 136 verse 2 says, Give thanks to the God of gods. I love that term. The God of all gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. How can a just God, how can a God who gives us what we deserve, at the same time extend his love and satisfy that attribute of steadfast love to his creation? How is it possible that God so loved the world and and he loves us so much? How can he express that when the people he's loving are people who have wronged him? who have rebelled against him, who have sinned against him, who are dead in their sins and transgressions, who deserve the wages of sin, which is death. How can a God combine these attributes and satisfy them completely to his people? And this is the answer. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to show you that balance of both. I love it. Before I read this, I'm going to read another one. Hosea chapter 2 verse 19. All right, Hosea chapter 2 from verse 19, it says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will, and you know the story of Hosea with the, the prostitute God asked him to marry as a demonstrative prophecy of how God loves the idolatrous Israel who run away from him, you know, and he's trying to, you know, bring them back. That's the picture. And so, you know, here speaking, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in steadfast love and in mercy. Psalm 33 verse 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love, of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's powerful. Righteousness and justice and then love. Steadfastness, justice, love. How is God able to satisfy all these things in one to a people who have made, made mistakes? I'm going to give you two scriptures to kind of give us that answer. I'm going to read... Uh, Romans chapter 6 from verse 32, which we read earlier. Romans 6, 32. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus. The free gift of God is eternal life. So there is a wages of sin, but there's a free gift of God. What is that free gift of God? You're going to find out. Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 4 to 5. But God... But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us. I love the the, the expressions here. Rich in mercy, great love. Rich in mercy, great love. There's an abundance to it. I don't know if you see it here, but there's an abundance to his love. He says, even when we were dead... Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with who? With Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is the free gift. The gift that grace afforded us. That we are brought to life in Christ. Glory to God. This is powerful. So to answer the question, why did Christ Jesus, our Lord, have to die on the cross? Because of the justice of God. Someone had to pay the price. But how is God able to extend his mercy to us? Still by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was on the cross that the justice and mercy of God were fully satisfied. Say hallelujah if you believe it. 
Oh, this is powerful. That God could have someone pay the, the price that you were meant to pay and then give you things that you didn't even deserve to receive. And that's what you talk about mercy. That's what you talk about grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So that's how God put Jesus to express his mercy on the cross, that you deserve the death he died, the punishment, the damnation. You deserved all of that, but you didn't get it. And then he decided to give you things that you didn't even merit whatsoever. He gave those things to you. They're called spiritual blessings. When you read the book of Ephesians, you'll see them. There was forgiveness. There was adoption of sons. There was relationship with God. There was eternal life. There was a life to look forward beyond this life. That was given to you in Christ Jesus as unmerited favor. You, you couldn't have done anything to get it except by the person who gave it to you. Powerful stuff. But then here's the problem. When people hear that, look, God you know, has a problem with us. And this is something that not only happened in the Old Testament, it still happens today is that when people see that they're, they're falling short of God's glory, they try to compensate. They try to do things that say, okay, you know what? This is maybe, this is point number 10. I, I'm on a very beautiful relationship with God, but I did certain things, now I'm on a seven. Okay, what can I do to boost up this, uh, this my lovometer, you know, with God? Okay, let me try and go to church on Sunday. Okay, okay, I need to pay my tithes. That's what the pastor said. We should pay our tithes. It moves God's hands. Okay, I'll do it. Maybe when I do that one, I'll reach eight. Then I'll now go to that street and give to that poor man. And maybe I'll reach nine. Then I'll now pray and fast. Kabash. Wow, Father. And pray for long hours. Maybe I'll get to that ten. And people start to use activity to move the hand of God. People start to do things and, and do some good works to move God's hand. But that's the problem. You miss the idea of righteousness when you go to establish a righteousness of your own. God's righteousness is different from the idea of man's righteousness. And Paul tried to explain that. And I'm going to show you this in, 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 in the book of Romans. But before I do that, Isaiah said something about this. When the children of Israel were again, of course, rebelling against their God, he said something and you know, they're trying to come clean, they were, they were not repenting about it, but they were just trying to mask their activities. And, and he rebukes them, you know, in, in Isaiah chapter 64, from verse 6. Isaiah actually rebukes them, and he includes himself in the equation. He says, but we are like an unclean thing. We are like an unclean thing. These guys were worshipping all sorts of idols. He says, we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our iniquities have driven us away from God's place. But our righteousness are what? Are like filthy rags. And I don't want to go into all the details of this, but the, the actual understanding of what filthy rags is, is a soiled feminine hygiene product. I think many of you will understand what I mean. That's actually the, the word, the term from the, the Greek, the Hebrew word, I think, ida, um, that summarizes that, you know, which, which causes someone to be impure during that time. So that was the word that was being used. It means, the idea is this. Let me just paint a better picture. Imagine you're offended, and I, I can give you a personal example uh, with, with my wife. You know, there was a time, <laughs> you know, there was a time that, I said something, you know, 
very innocently and she was upset by it right and i noticed so i was like okay let me just give her time to get over it and let me just try and do some good things and i think even that same day i bought her a present i think so yeah i bought her a present and you know she was like thank you <laughs> that was it that was what she thank you the fight did not, it, not, I won't call it a fight, but the, the tension did not end, basically. And we carried it over, you know, till later that day, you know, until we finally got to talk about it and addressed it. And I had to come clean and say, look, okay, I think I really did offend you and I'm sorry. I apologize. And this is the reason why this, 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 this. But I noticed something that, see, and I believe it's the same way with you. How many of you have been offended? And the person is just trying to buy your allegiance again. The person is trying to just buy you off with gifts and just do this and do that. The person is not coming clean and saying, I'm sorry. Like, that's all you want. You don't want the gifts. You want the, I'm sorry. How many of you, that even the more they're doing it, it's even choking you more. Why are you, some of you can relate. <laughs> I feel that that's just how it is with God. Like, don't come to me and try to impress me. You are, you are in the wrong. I need you to repent. And I need you to see that you cannot get yourself in the right place unless I do it for you. If you are dirty, you're not trying, don't try and, 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 and make up yourself and clean yourself up. Or else you don't need a savior. But you do need a savior because you can't get yourself clean. You can't be right all by yourself internally. You need external help. And many people in that time, even as Isaiah was speaking, even till today, we are trying to do good things to impress God. And even believers who have believed by faith are trying to continue this work by works. And of course, I'm going to give a balance to it. But in terms of your relationship with God, that song was right. I will never be more loved than I am right now. That's the relationship you have with God. God loved you so much more. It has not changed even now. When you make those mistakes, it still doesn't change. Because when you see the love of a father to a child, an earthly father to a child, a father is much more present. I, let me ask you the question. If you see a, a father walking down the road with the child, and you're just having an excursion, you're walking down the, you know, the road, and I say, Junior, be careful, though. If you step on that stone, you will fall down, and I will not pick you up. Oh. I, will, I will just laugh at you, and you'll be crying. And you say, I will not fall down, Joe. I will not fall down. Don't worry. And they're walking, and he's playing, playing. Junior... He's playing, playing, junior. He's playing, oh, bugu, 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 bugu. He falls down. And that's a road, maybe a deserted road. You now say, I should be, I want, should be, I want, bye bye. And then walks away and goes home and leaves junior there on the road in the middle of nowhere. Tell me, what father will do that? Tell me. If you were the father, would you do that? Even though you told junior that's what you do, would you do that? Of course not. But somehow it seems we don't judge God more faithful than human fathers. He said, if your fathers are able to give bread when you ask them for bread and they don't give you a stone or they don't give you a serpent when you ask for fish, how much more will your heavenly father? How much more? So maybe the case is you don't raise God. Maybe that's the issue. You don't raise them. That's the problem. The earthly father will see Junior and say, oh, this is even a time where Junior needs me the most. And if Junior cannot walk, you carry him, but we're going to that destination no matter what. You carry him on your shoulders and you keep going and you keep going because Junior needs you. It's the same picture we have of God where he says he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we have this idea that God 
just, you know, is so eager, waiting for the very next moment. Oh yeah, for just make a mistake. Ah! We can leave him now. <laughs> I don't finish. I'll close my nine to five for today. And God goes to relax. That, that's not the idea. It's when you fall that you need him even more. And that's when he's even going to be more present for you. Say loud hallelujah if you believe it. Anyways, back to what I was saying. These guys were trying to appease God with some sort of righteous works. But to God, it means nothing. Filthy rags, he says. In Romans chapter 10 from verse 1, Paul is addressing this, talking about this kind of righteousness that tries to move the hand of God. And he says, brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about his Jewish brothers, Right? He's preached to the Gentiles. He's talking to the Gentiles right now, the Romans, and saying that, look, my brothers or my Jewish brothers, I, I wish to God about anything more that, that they will be saved. Verse 2, he said, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They do. A lot of people are, are church goers. We'll talk about this next week. They go to church, but they are not saved. <laughs> Shocker. Not everyone that goes to church is a believer or a born-again Christian. I'm telling you now, it will save your life. It will save your life from wrong relationships and association. And also, you know, a lot... I'll talk about it next week. False conversions. It, it happens a lot. People even feel they are saved, and they're really not, because they've not believed the true gospel. There's only one gospel that we are required to believe in, and it's only that one gospel that has the power to save. So a lot of people go to church, do the motions, they're zealous for God. They pray, they join the morning prayers, they fast, they give their tithes, and they're not saved. Think about that. That's huge. That's huge. You have people that you, you probably know that go to church and truly have not experienced Christ. It's, it's a dangerous thing to think about. It's scary. It says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're doing it in ignorance. They think that the way, you know, even Paul was, was, was a, a culprit of this, where he thought that God's work was to arrest these Christians, not knowing that he was meant to follow the work they were doing. <laughs> he was zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. The word end means the fulfillment, the culmination of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Glory to Jesus. And, and you'll say, what, but did these guys have an example? How would they have known God's righteousness? And thankfully, he had established that in Romans chapter 4. He uses the case of Abraham and David, and we'll look at that uh, very shortly, to show them that this template of receiving righteousness was always there in these people, in these uh, father figures in the faith. It was always there. But you went about seeking to, to achieve your own sort of righteousness. You thought by, by the long hours of prayer, that's what makes you righteous? That's a problem. It's never by the works you do that you move God's hand and get his favor. It's never about that. Praise the name of Jesus. We need to realize that when it comes to a relationship with God, oh, God first served you before you served him. God first served you before you served him. He served you on the cross. God first loved you before you even thought about loving him. 
So at the same time, <laughs> God must first take that proactive step to save you before you can be saved. He's the initiator of his grace. He's the initiator of salvation. He's the initiator of the gospel. He's the initiator of righteousness. He invented it. He alone is the one that can tell you what righteousness looks like. And he's the only one that can make one truly righteous. And so when you go about to establish your own righteousness, you're saying, God, no, no, you have your own plan, it's fine. But let me do my own thing. This is what I think will move you. This is what I think will earn your favor. This is what I feel will earn your love. But you cannot earn the love of God by anything that you do except by faith in his finished work on the cross. Glory to Jesus. I'm going to read you a scripture in Romans chapter 5 from verse 8. To just emphasize what I was saying, which you know very well. But God commended his love towards us that while we are yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. This is how he expressed his love, that he first loved us before we even thought of loving him. That while we are yet sinners, Christ actually died for us. This is powerful. That while we're still in rebellion, you know, the, the, the preceding verses said, no, how did, would anyone die for someone who is righteous? But imagine someone going out of their way to die for a sinner. That is what God did in Christ Jesus. All in a bid to establish the kind of righteousness that is acceptable to him. So let me show you the, the template that these guys had for what righteousness looked like. I'm rehashing this thing because... As much as you might have actually believed that you were saved by grace, you know, and, and by your faith in Jesus Christ, you can easily make the switch if you're not careful. You might easily make the switch back to trying to move God's hand and impress God or even attribute the wrong that you do, or the wrong that you experience, I beg your pardon, to, to bad things that you've done. And you say God is punishing you because this and this and that. If God, while you were doing this, this and that and that, this bad things, was a loving to you that he gave his life for you. Why do you think that it's now that you are his child? That when you are doing those bad things, he's now punishing you for all those things. Why? Why where do we get this idea from? Does God teach us and discipline us with his word? Yes. But he's not going to go out and punish you because every good and perfect gift comes from God who is the father of light. And there's no variableness, no shadow of turning with him, the Bible says. So it's great news to know that God, God's love for you truly, as they have said in those scriptures, is steadfast. It's a steadfast love, a love that doesn't shake. It, it's a love that doesn't have mood swings. It's a love that continues. As God never changes, and I told you this is the most profound revelation that I've ever had on the love of God, that if God was the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he never changes, he's immutable, it means that his love, because God is love, his love also lasts forever. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. It won't start now. Let me show you the story of the, the fathers of the faith to show you how this righteousness was established. Romans chapter 4. Open your Bibles with me. I'm going to read some eight verses there from verse 1 to 8, and I want you to read with me. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Praise the name of Jesus. Are you learning something? Glory to Jesus. Glory to Jesus. Verse 1 says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Abraham. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If he was justified by only the things that he did, he has much to brag about. 
He says, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Verse 3, Abraham believed, trusted God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For righteousness. And many people just think that the extent of Abraham's faith was just in believing that you have a child. Don't miss the picture. It's not just about having a child. It's beyond just the biological process. It's that through him, the, 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 the commandment in Genesis 12 that came to him, the promise, was that through him and his seed, all nations of the world, not just the Jewish people, but everyone in the world will be blessed. And we see the reality in Galatians chapter 3, the explanation that that blessing was the promise of the Spirit that will come to anyone who will believe just like Abraham believed. That's powerful. The promise of salvation through the seed of Abraham. That was what he believed for. And I love that, the, the, think about it, when you look at the story, the, the account was that Abraham believed God. He didn't, the, the scripture doesn't say, ah, Abraham believed God, but, you know, there are those times where, you know, he said, ah, let me go and do this thing myself and, and, you know, get another wife and, you know, give birth to another child, which he did. Abraham, yes, made mistakes. Yes, he tried to establish his own type of righteousness, to try and have his own child and establish God's own promises his own way. But God said, no, 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 I told you it will be through Sarah. What are you doing? And Abraham was like, no, no, let, let it be Ishmael. God said, no, I said I want it to be Sarah. But look at the narrative. It doesn't say Abraham was a man who, who had wobbling faith. And the overall action story, because at the end of the day, Abraham got back to himself, reminded himself of God's promises and truly believed. And that's how God sees us. Yes, you've made mistakes, but you are only righteous because you believed him. You, made, you had doubts here and there. You made mistakes here and there. But did you believe him nonetheless? Did you stay in your faith in the Lord and believe his promises? That is what makes you righteous. And when the heavens open their accounts over your life, they say, oh, look at this person called mercy. You, you believed in the mercy of God. And look at your life. You were counted as righteous because of it. Verse 4. Now to him... Who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So he says, if you work for something, you earned it. It's a, it's a salary. It's a wage. You can't consider it as grace. You can't, if they give you a pay in your place, you say, ah, thank you, sir. <laughs> I never expected it. You expected it. You worked for it. But he said, verse 5, but to him who does not work, to him who does not work, this is the Bible. To him or her who does not work, but does what? But believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. The one who believes that God can save the ungodly, your faith is counted for righteousness. That is the righteousness according to God. Verse 6. Now he brings David to convince these guys. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he quotes the scripture. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. If you are that blessed man and woman here right now, can you shout aloud, amen? Glory to God, hallelujah. He's talking about you. 
You who have believed that God is faithful to forgive the ungodly. He says the one who, who, who God is able to impute, impute, install, establish, bequeath righteousness to apart from your works. It's phenomenal. David could not even comprehend. He said, blessed is that man, whoever you are in the, in the distant or near future. I don't know, but if you're such a person where God will just look upon you and say, I forgive you. It's messy. It's a lot of mess and baggage and sin and death, but I forgive it all. I wash you clean and I will not impute your sins. I will not record your sins against your name. Against you. I wipe it all clean. Blessed is that person. Titus chapter 3 from verse 3 to 5. Titus chapter 3 from verse 3 to 5. It says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, seven various lusts and pleasures. Was that you? Was that you in your past? Yes, it was. Let's be honest. I know you. <laughs> Living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Come on, that, that was your story. But I did a teaching several years back, maybe about three or four years back, called the but moment. I used all sorts of scriptures to show the but moment. That, that place where you see but God. But God. We read one in Ephesians where it says, but God through his mercy, his great love, and he, who was rich in mercy saved us. You know, here you see this. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, towards man appeared. Oh, I don't know if this gets you. That everything God did, he did because of his kindness in Christ. He did it because he loved you. He did it not expecting anything in return except your willingness to just live for him. He's just, he's just loving. My goodness, what a God that is. He's just kind. Ah. <sighs> That's powerful stuff. Verse 5, not by works. He didn't do this because you did some right things. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. For some of you, this is your first time ever seeing this. And for some of you, this thing needs to stick. Not, of, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, it was all him. It was all him. The sacrifice, the love, the chasing, the grace, it's all him. He initiated it. He worked it. That was his work on the cross when he said it is finished. The works were finished. He was not asking you to contribute. You could not contribute anything to salvation except the sin that made salvation necessary. You couldn't. The work was finished. Finito. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he what saved us. Glory to God. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, he saved you. He saved you because of his mercy. Ephesians 2, 8 verse 9, you know this all too well. And if you can recite this with me as, as loud as you can, please go ahead. Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 8 to 9. I'm reading from the ESV. He says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. So it was the grace of God. The unmerited favor of God that saved you. But how did you receive it? It was what? Through faith. 
The same way Abraham received it through his belief and his trusting in God, which is faith. So you receive grace through faith, not through works. And he goes on and says, and, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Imagine you go about saying, oh, I just, happy, happy birthday. I want to give you a very nice gift. Here you go. <laughs> That'll be $1,000. Yeah, no, I'm serious. It's a gift to you, but I still need some money. Who does that? It's free. There was nothing you had to do except receive the gift. Are you following what I'm saying? It's a gift of God. If it's not free, if it demands certain actions, demands certain levels of, of ascetic practices, it is not salvation. It's not. At least not God's salvation. It says it is the gift of God, not a result of works. Not a result of works, lest any man may boast. The idea is that God wants to strip you of every bragging right. He wants you to focus on his finished work, to boast in him, to boast in Christ Jesus, to brag in him and say, I, if you're going to stand before God and says, why should I let you come into my home? Why should I let you come into my kingdom? He doesn't want you to say, ah, come on, ah, uh-uh. can you not see this leather jacket? God, you safe now, you know, now I sabi this thing, ah, uh-uh. I, I follow you, I, I sabi this thing, I, you know. And you say, ah, did you see my bank accounts, God? My global bank account. Did you see the cars I have? Come on. Please open the door. I'm wasting my time, God. <laughs> God wants you to step before him and say, look, I had nothing in myself to make me worthy of being part of your family and part of your kingdom, but you made me worthy somehow. I don't know how a sinner like me could have merited such grace, but that's the point. I couldn't merit it. And so you looked at me in love and said that you would give me all that you wanted to give me, righteousness, forgiveness, adoption, relationship. You would give me all these things only because I believed and trusted in you. Of course, you're not going to give that long speech. It's too long. You don't want to bore them. But the whole point is this. If you're going to brag about anything, you say, I boast in you. You are my righteousness. You are my redemption. You are my salvation. Without you, I am nothing. That is the truth. You saved me from the miry clay. You lifted me up from the bottom. Here I am now seated in your son. Here I am now a child of God. Here I am a joint heir with your son. Here I am a fellow son, an heir of salvation, born of your spirit. This is who I am. I was saved by your death raised by your life. Now you live in me and I live for you, by you forever. This is my life now. It was because of you. That's what God wants to hear. It's music to his ears. It shows that you understand what you have received. And this is one quick way I always find out if someone truly is saved or understands salvation. I just simply ask, are you a Christian? Yes. Why are you a Christian? Hmm. Because I go to church, um, I mean, I'm a good person. I pay my time. I don't sleep around. I don't drink. I don't drink. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't lie anymore. Um, I mean, I'm a decent guy. So that's what makes you a Christian. Yes. Where is the Christ in Christian? I, all I heard was me and, if there's anything, myself and, or whatever. I didn't hear Christian. I didn't see Christ. Why, why are you a Christian? You have to start with what Christ did for you. The finished works of Christ. Look, even if you're a good person, morally speaking, 
you still needed a savior. You still needed a savior. Everyone. You know, and Paul says that whether you sinned in the same way Adam sinned or not, you were born from Adam, so your nature was already sinful. And that's why when you leave a child, think about it. When you leave a child, this child, you know, is just a child, you know. And you say this child is innocent. This child is a perfect child. You are innocent from birth. Just leave that child eh, to do anything they want. You will see that the child tends to go in the direction of sin, of disobedience. You say children, you say stop that. The child wants to do it even more. You say don't do this. The child will do it. You see that the ch- children, even themselves, who we call sometimes pure, go in that direction. It, it just proves to tell you the nature of sin in man. Oh, glory to God. But in all these things, we can clearly and boldly say that God saved us by his works. His own works, not by ours. And when we talk about any gift of God, we always must talk about it it in abundance. Whether it's his love, his mercy, his grace, you must always talk about it in abundance because God doesn't hoard. He doesn't hoard. Even James says, if any man lacks wisdom, ask of God. He doesn't keep it. He gives it liberally. There's, there's anything God gives, he gives in abundance. He, he doesn't say, oh yeah, take, take, some, take some more biscuits. Yeah, take, take, take. He gives you the whole box, the whole Danish cookies box. And tells you, don't turn it into a tailoring set. You know. <laughs> Catch yourself, African mothers. Uh, and then he you know, gives you all of that because he loves to give in abundance. And Isaiah 54 highlights this. Isaiah 54 from verse 10. Uh, I'm going to give you some balance to this good works discussion as quickly as I can. But let me talk about abundance grace. Abundance grace. Isaiah 54 from verse 10. For the mountains may depart. Mountains. You look at one of the most sturdy, steadfast things that you can ever see. And Isaiah uses that description. He says the mountains, as sturdy as they are, they can run away. They can depart. And the hills can be removed. But my steadfast love talking about the Lord's love, shall not depart from you. Look at that steadfast love. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That's the love of God. It's extravagant. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to handle. Romans chapter 5 from verse 17 and verse 20. And you see Paul bringing such emphasis to this grace, this love. Look at it. Romans 5 verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So if one man, Adam, caused death, we will receive an abundance of grace to reign in life through one man called Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he goes on to say, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The picture he's painting is this. Look, even though there is sin, there is more grace to cover the sin. Even if your sin is like a drop of water, God is bringing his Pacific Ocean to cover it. Think about it. It's, it's, it's enormous. It's enormous. And any teaching of God's grace must always sound like this. There must be a boast in the abundance of the grace of God. It has to be boasted about. It has to be talked about. You're doing people more good by talking about the, the extravagance and abundance of God's grace than lying that, they, that doesn't exist. 
the line that God is just, you know, taking his time with you, waiting for your next wrong move. You're doing people more disservice telling them that. But when you, ex- when you express the abundance of grace, you help people. And anytime you truly, see, one, one major way you can tell you're doing well in explaining the grace of God is that people would ask you a question, which they ask, you know, Paul, or maybe he even anticipated they would ask. And he, he wrote it in Romans chapter 6 from verse 1 to 2. What shall we say then? Like, look, I know you are asking these questions. Are, are we going to continue in sin? Since I said when sin increases, grace abounds much more. Are we now saying that we should continue in sin so that this grace will abound even more? So by helping God, for God to keep doing his grace, we should be sinning, you know, so you can be giving more grace. <laughs> are we saying we should live that kind of life? He said, God forbid, by no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? The idea is that the understanding of abundant grace enables you. It enables you to live this free life because you truly were crucified. And I don't have time to read the rest of this chapter, but this chapter alone talks about how we were crucified with him in baptism. And the body of sin was destroyed and we were raised to the newness of life, to walk in the newness of life. That's the story of the believer the, who has experienced abundant grace. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. So how can you who are dead to sin see grace as an opportunity to keep sinning? When you are dead to sin, the idea is that if you see a dead man and you slap the dead man, the dead man is dead to your slap because he, has, he, he cannot be touched by it. He's dead to it. Do you understand? That's the idea. So Paul is not advocating for promiscuous living. And saying, look, the grace of God covers anything. You can do whatever you like. That's a dangerous teaching. And the reason why I know Paul is not propagating this is because he warns against it in Jude. In Jude chapter 1, verse 4, this is what he says. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. What were these people doing? These people with false teachers that crept in. What were they doing? Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The another version says he tu- they're turning the grace of God to lasciviousness. They're saying you can use this grace to do whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. But we know, we know that good works do matter. God wants us to do good works that men will see those good works and glorify the Father. Let your, your light so shine, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5. So that men will see those good works. It's important. Titus 2.14 says that he has redeemed the people who would be zealous for good works. Good works are important. In fact, even Ephesians chapter 2 that we read, verse 10 says we are his what? Workmanship. Glory to God. We are his masterpiece. We are created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? What is your destiny in Christ? Good works. (laughs) Good works. You are created for the purpose of doing good works. Good works. Good works. Good works are important. But this is where the balance is. And I'll just, I'll just list this out. I've, I've, I've taught this before. I want to list it again. Good works are a receipt of salvation, not the payment for it. I'll repeat that. Good works are the receipt of salvation, not the payment for it. They're the proof that truly you have received salvation. The receipts, the receipts. Good works are the product of salvation, not 
the raw materials. Good works are the product of salvation, not the raw materials. Good works are the result of salvation, not the requirements. Good works are the result of salvation, not the requirements. Good works are the fruit of salvation, not the seeds of it. Good works are the fruit of salvation, not the seeds for it. Good works are the returns of salvation, not the investment for it. Good works are the returns of salvation, not the investment for it. So the whole point is this. The good works are at the end goal, at the end of, of, the, of the day. If you have a tap, and I use this example a lot, if you have a tap that is shiny, is golden, gold-plated, looks beautiful on the outside, and you turn it open, and it starts to bring dirty water. You now say, you know what, the problem is the paint. I need to paint it some more. You paint it again, and you still bring it. That's, that's a problem. You've not solved the problem. The problem is not the outward part. It's the inward part. It's the water. And that's what the gospel aims to solve. That's what the, the Pharisees and scribes didn't realize. They tried to look good on the outside that somehow that would change that innate feeling and desire of sin in them. That when Jesus called them out and said, if you've not sinned, cast the first stone. They knew that even though they looked good and they've practiced the law and they've memorized the Torah, they are sinners. They know. And they all walked away. So the gospel and the grace of God came to do an inside-out work, not an outside-in. It's not the reverse. God wants to work on you on the inside, change that nature. And by changing that nature, you start to produce according to that nature. Jesus said, you shall know, you know, you shall know them by what? Their fruits. You shall know a good tree by the fruits it produce, produces. The work has to be done on the inside. There has to be a transformation. That's what salvation does. It changes you, changes your location from darkness to light, from death to life, so that you can live a life of life. <laughs> and perhaps you are the kind of person who just, you just have to work. You like work. You like work. You want to work. Good works. Good works. Let me give you a scripture. It's for you. John chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 26 to 29 as we bring this to a close. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. And, and this talks about what I mentioned earlier. It's, it's what the prosperity gospel at its core does. It baits people with the wrong thing. People start to come to God because they need one thing or the other. The, the things that don't last. You, you come to God and pray in chapel because of your exams. You, want, you have a job you know, that you're looking for, a job interview. That's when you think to pray and fast. You know, those things, it's, 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 the, it's, it's off the offerings of, 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 of the prosperity gospel. And Jesus rebukes them. They're coming for the wrong reasons. And he warns them in verse 27, Labor not for the meat that perishes but for the meat that endures unto everlasting life. He's giving them a priority shift. There are things of more eternal value than just bread that you would eat and you would give out, you know. And it says, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For him had God the Father sealed. And then verse 28, they were curious. What is God, what is this man Jesus telling us? And they said unto him, what shall we do? I love those questions. What shall we do? Because whenever you ask those questions, you always get an answer. 
What shall I do to be saved? And these guys are asking something similar. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? These are, these are religious, law-infused people asking what can we do next? What more can we do to end God's favor, to move God's hands, to do the works of God? And look at Jesus' reply in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That the work of God at the end of the day is faith in Christ Jesus. Ah. So whenever you, rem- you think about it, God at, at the very foundation needs your faith in him. That is more than enough. Your faith in God is so precious that the devil is doing everything he can to tarnish that faith, to destroy that faith. He's doing everything he can, looking from home to the bar. But your faith is precious to God. Say, my faith is precious to God. My faith is precious to God. And believing in God is the work required of me. Glory to God. So when it comes to receiving salvation, the only work God expects of you is your faith. It's your faith in His Son. John 3.16, I, I, I felt tempted not to include it in my notes, but I put it there. Because I don't want it to be too common. This is the point. I'm saying the same thing you've heard over and over. But John 3.16 can mean a different thing for you right now. That God so loved the world that he gave and sacrificed his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him and puts faith in his son and trusts the sacrifice that was done on the cross and up from the grave. Will not perish and receive the punishment Jesus received. Receive the wages of sin. But will have what? Everlasting life. The free gift of God to us. For the wages of sin is death. But the Free gift of God is eternal life. <laughs> Through Jesus Christ our Lord. If this doesn't get you excited and give you goosebumps right now, I don't know what will. You trying to bring your good works to the equation is like coming to someone who invited you for dinner and you bring your plastic spoon to impress the person to feast. While the cutlery they have is gold-plated spoons, gold-plated cutlery. You're trying to impress that person. No, he's the one that will give you what you use to eat. <laughs> he has it. Don't try this year, 2023, if you've not made up your mind to have a true growing relationship with God, if you've not made up your mind about that, see, I wish to God that you will. That you see it's not just in your service to God, that you first receive the service of God before you, you, you serve him. The service of God was done on that cross for you. He served you with his very life. And he wants you to receive it. And that's why I always tell people. Not be, I understand when people say, I, I want to give my life to Christ. I understand. And people think I'm troublesome for, for trying to correct it. But I'm, I'm trying to, to renew a notion in our mind that subconsciously can wire it to believe that we have something to prove and earn in terms of God's favor. But when you want to come to, re- to, 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 to be born again, you're not coming to give your life because you had nothing to give. The Bible literally said you were dead in your trespasses and you had no life. 
So in salvation, you come to receive life first. And then God expects that because he bought you with his price, you, with a price, with his blood, you, you start to live this life for him. And that's what it means to give your life to Christ. So at salvation, you receive his life. But to do good works, you give your life. Glory to God. It's important you know the difference. It, it changes everything about your life. But in this, this is where you find the victory over sin. This is where you find the victory over sin. That God has given you his grace. He's giving you, and, and grace is not just um, that favor you received in salvation to get you first saved. It's the empowerment you need as you are being saved. It's the empowerment you need to live a righteous life. You know, Paul speaks and says this. He says, I labored more abundantly. He's talking about work, right? He did some apostolic work. He labored more in terms of ministry. He did more things, produced more fruits, delivered more results. He labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but what? The grace of God with me. The grace, the grace. So it's still the same grace that would help you to do the good works. Come on now, are you following me? The same unmerited favor that would empower you. So people get it wrong when they say grace is a license to go on and sin and it doesn't matter what you do with your life. No, grace is a calling to a higher standard of living that enables you to actually do the work. It says, Moses, Jesus said, um, the writer, I beg your pardon, John says that Moses brought the law, but grace, which is the truth, Jesus brought that because grace is the truth. It's not by the law that you can be righteous. It's not by the law that you can earn God's favor. It's by grace and grace alone. Grace is the truth. Come on, say grace is the truth. Grace is the true way to live for God. Hallelujah. I have so much to share with you. But I want to, and next week we'll talk about eternal security, questions about eternal security. But one thing I want you to remember consciously, even as you grow in your devotion, is to remember that God loves you and you will never be more loved than you are right now. You are the most loved you will ever be by God. Right now. Right now. And it gives you the confidence that even when you make mistakes, yes, you should repent. Yes, you should be sorry. There is godly sorrow. And I've emphasized it a lot. You can't just shake it up and say, oh, didn't she? I did bad things. Oh, didn't she? It doesn't matter. I'm moving on. You should be sorrowful. You should be displeased that you are are walking inconsistent with your new nature in Christ. But you cannot stay there. There is godly sorrow, but there is ungodly sorrow. There is a sorrow that leads to condemnation. There is a sorrow that leads to guilt, where you are basing your relationship with God on performance. It's about what you've done, what you didn't do. That's not what even got you into God's family in the first place. It wasn't about your works. It was about his finished works on the cross. I want you to remember that as you are giving yourself to devotion and consecration, to remember that it's not even the devotion and consecration that make you earn God's favor. It's not. And of course, I'll always strike the balance and say, these things help you. You grow intimately with the Lord. You do more work. You are more fruitful when you devote yourself to God. But that is not what got you in in the first place. I can tell you that that guy on the cross beside Jesus, whom Jesus, you know, the criminal whom Jesus said, look, remember me in your kingdom. That guy is just as loved as you are loved. Even though you have spent 50 years in the faith and you only spent less than a day in the faith, he is as much loved as you are 
by God. Facts. Until we realize that it gives us the sense of humility and also reminds us that we serve a faithful God. He's not the one whose love has mood swings. We can count that tomorrow his mercies are new again. His mercies are new every morning. And the next day, his mercies are new. And the next day, God still loves me. It's not a case of he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me. He loves me, he loves me. Hallelujah. He loves me and he loves me some more. That's the life of the believer in Christ. I want you to take this with all the joy. I want this to renew your joy. The joy of your salvation. That God actually loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He proved it. He proved it. I want to remind you also that this inspires boldness and confidence to God. That you can stand before God and have confidence. That you can have made mistakes and still say, God, this is what I need. And he comes through for you because he's your father. That, that this gives you a sense of humility before God, knowing that it wasn't by your works. Because God gives more grace to the humble and he resists the proud. It was not by your works, it was by his grace. And I hope that this provides the victory you need over sin. To realize that it is God who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure by his grace. It's not by your power and, and, and self-motivation and your, your, your sacrifices. Yes, those are important, but it's his, him through his grace working in you both to will and do of his good pleasure that by his grace you can labor more abundantly. And I hope that this sustains your hope beyond this world. That because you have everlasting life, you will breathe again after your last breath. That you will come back to life after this life. That you will meet the one who has loved you and saved you on that day when he returns. That there is a hope, a living hope as Peter says. Peter the apostle. You have been brought alive to a living hope. And that is what you have. And I pray all these things stay with you and that you grow in the grace of our Lord. That you will not fall from grace. And to fall from grace means to start to establish a righteousness of your own that is not according to the righteousness of God, which is given and received by faith. I want you to remember this as you go through this year that you are loved by God and it's by his grace and his grace alone that you are saved. Hallelujah. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.